Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. The topic of harvest management is always an interesting discussion. There is some really good research underway in South Texas about the harvest management of quail. There are many dynamics to consider. To help us with details is Dr. Abe Woodard of the East Foundation. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Hello, Gary. It's good to hear from you, and I always look forward to working with you guys over at Farm Bureau and with uh, putting on the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast. We appreciate the magic and the help that y'all do with that. Here we are with the February podcast. Uh, we're kind of in the last throes of the 2023-24 quail hunting season. Got about a week left to go. At least here in West Texas, it's been about what we expected. Uh, a fair in most areas, uh, good in some areas. Uh, Temperature-wise and moisture-wise, we've been uh, really good. Uh, we kind of had an endless summer. We still have mesquite leaves on the trees here as of the first of the year. So uh, it's been a mild winter at this point at least. And it's been, a uh, as promised, an El Nino uh, precipitation event. So we've had good fall and winter moisture up to this point and that bodes very well for 2024 we'll hope we can continue to keep the rain the forecast got a great crop of fillery coming on and should have a great crop of, crop of broomweed next year and that'll set the stage for what we hope is a really nice quail season a year from now back 90 years ago or so 1933 aldo leopold that name i'll be familiar to most of you aldo leopold published the first wildlife textbook on wildlife management called game management in 1933 and he therein he defined game management as the art and science of making land produce a sustained annual crop of wildlife for recreational use i'll repeat that the art and science of making land produce a sustained annual crop of wildlife for recreational use and in the wildlife profession we often talk about a triangle of wildlife management with uh, three legs, of course, of the triangle, the base of which the foundation is habitat. One leg is population management. The other leg is people management. So keep that in mind because we're going to be especially focusing on population management and people management as we move through. Uh, our discussion today is going to talk about harvest management. So again, it's uh, things like season length, bag limits, what I call the Hunter Covey interface. That was a phrase that was introduced in the late 1990s by Dr. Fred Guthrie. We'll be uh, talking about some theoretical aspects thereof called sustained yield. And when I think about sustained yield or optimal yield, uh, I remember back uh, to 1983, I was studying for my qualifying exams for a PhD at Texas Tech University and my major advisor, Fred Bryant, shout out to Fred, assigned me a reading called the, a book called the George Reserve Deer Herd, uh, written by Dale McCullough in 1978 about uh, uh, deer population dynamics in Michigan, but that was my introduction to some of the theoretical aspects of what's called optimal sustained yield. And uh, I remember a take-home message from that uh, as it relates to white-tailed deer was, according to McCullough, a white-tailed deer herd in good shape could sustain about a 35% annual harvest. In Texas, we harvest about 12%, so we're uh, considerably below what a, a a well-motivated deer herd could do. But we're going to talk about some of those kind of aspects as it relates to quail. And uh, with us today, our guest is Abe Woodard, Dr. Abe Woodard. Abe is with the East Foundation down at uh, Hebronville, Texas. So welcome aboard, Abe. We're glad to have you on the Dr. Dale and Quail podcast. Thank you, Dale. Excited to be here. Excited to be here. Why don't you start out by giving us some of your bona fides as, as it relates to your topic today? Yep. So, uh, so just long story short, I have, uh, I came down to South Texas from Ohio in 2008, started working on King Ranch. And, and that was kind of my, my introductory to, to Bob White's and South Texas kind of quail management. Uh, grew up hunting pheasants in, in Ohio. Um, so all this kind of bird dogs and everything I brought with me and uh, have really uh, enjoyed it. So I moved around quite a bit and, and an opportunity um, 
arose to come down and do my PhD with the East Foundation. And uh, it was looking into a, a harvest-based project. And so um, how, they, how they set it up and, and how they uh, tasked me and, and Dr. Uh, uh, Lenny Brennan from Caesar Clayburg was um, to focus on something big. We want something, uh, a fundamental principle that, that's hard to study. And, and um, really that would affect uh, land management that can't be done on, on other scales or on other properties or in, in the normal two to three year research projects. Uh, so we honed in on, on two real kind of core concepts of, of our pro of from South Texas quail management and harvest management. And one was um, the, the use of helicopter surveys and so there was a 2010 publication um, from Damaso et al. And, and Dr. Rollins was on that publication where it looked at developing the protocols for, for getting a Bob White estimate from a, from a helicopter and, and using distance sampling. But it was more for public use and, and had some um, correlative functions where you could plug in how many miles you flew and how many cubbies you saw. And so that was kind of the start. And then we wanted to look at Another another recommendation for the region, which was a <clears throat> a twenty percent harvest, and and this was really uh, kind of conceptualized in a, in in another Caesar Clayburg uh, management bulletin in two thousand fourteen, and it was really the guidelines for applying a harvest recommendation um, to the surveys that that from the survey function. Um, of, of your pastures, of your ranches, the estimates of density of Bob Whites and, and applying a harvest recommendation to that. And so a, a few kind of underlining concept, concepts in that manuscript was that there was a recommended 20% harvest for South Texas, and that included factoring for crippled. So birds lost in the field, whether they were uh, feathered or shot down or legged, um, just unrecovered birds that were be considered towards a harvest mortality. And so that 20% that is really kind of a, uh, an estimate um, from, from the work, the PhD work of Joey Sands. So Dr. Sands looked at all these different levels of harvest. He looked at 10% and 20%, 30% up to 40%. And he looked at the, um, in, a, in an integrated population model, he looked at um, rate of extinction. So he was looking at how well these populations performed over a hundred years timeframes. And then he also looked at um, total yield over those hundred years. So he was wanting to see um, how, how many birds could be harvested during that time frame, And what was the likelihood of that population going, to ex going extinct? And he ran these for 165 uh, simulations. So that model would run over and over and over again on that different harvest level. And what he found was that 20% was kind of that optimal range. It had the highest yield of birds harvested um, and it had at least likelihood of going extinct. And so really that 20% that just kind of plugged in and it was similar to some work that, that Dr. Guthrie had done uh, prior to that and actually some models that Damaso had run as well. And so that 20% that was, was recommended for the region and for the landowners and hunters down here, um, but it really had never been tested in the field. So no one had really gone out and, and shot 20% or, you know, had a, had a harvest mortality of 20% and looked at what happened, looked at the, the outcomes and, and look at not only just population level responses, but also, um, you know, what that amount of pressure does to the distributions of birds and, and, is that even possible? You know, can can we go out and, and uh, using our helicopter methods actually prescribe a twenty percent harvest? And so, this is kind of um, the, within my project. And as we began and kind of settled in on what what the East Foundation really wants to look at and what the purpose of their science program is, we settled in on all right. Let's evaluate. You know, this sustained. Uh, sustainable harvest recommendation that, that's been put out for the region. Um, take it beyond those computer models and actually look at those responses in the field 
and, and see what happens when, when 20% is harvest over, over a long, significant time frame. You know, when we started this project, it, 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 from the get-go, we knew we were going to go um, long-term. This was, this was a long-term commitment from, from uh, myself and the, and the East Foundation. And it was, uh, I think it's been um, really informative so far. And, uh, and obviously, we'll chat more about that. But it's been uh, really learning a lot of different things and, and obviously leading to more questions like all research projects do. Okay, let me tap the brakes out there for just a minute, Abe. And as I mentioned in my introductory comments, the art and science, and then we're going to be getting into kind of quail 303 here for much of this podcast today. So uh, have your pencil ready, take some notes and so forth. And I've, uh, I've asked Dr. Woodard to, we got to keep the, some of the figures down to a minimum because we're not have a PowerPoint here, but uh, he'll be available and can uh, provide that kind of information and can give us some uh, recommendations for further readings as we come to the conclusion of today's podcast. Let's talk just a minute about the East Foundation because, I mean, most of us in the quail world have heard about uh, Cedric Clayburg Wildlife Research Foundation and uh, well, well, adapt, well acquainted with the various people, Dr. Brennan, Dr. Hernandez, and others down there. So tell us about the East Foundation. It's a fairly recent uh, addition to our science model in Texas, isn't it, Abe? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the foundation was created from the, um, the will of Robert East. Uh, it, the family itself, the East family, is a long-term ranching family in the region, uh, relatives of King Ranch. And, and um, Robert and his sister, uh, did not have families, did not have any descendants. And so really what they did with all their assets and all their property is they, they put it all into this um, foundation uh, through their will. And with that, they wanted, they wanted to really focus on three things. They wanted to focus on ranching. They wanted to focus on science. And they also wanted to focus on education. And those three things are kind of driven in our mission. And that's that's the purpose for what we do. And, and really all those we're looking at is, is land stewardship. So how can we be um, the best land stewards uh, in, in, in South Texas, in the counties that we have property? And so that that's our approach. We have uh, a cattle department, which has, uh, you know, cowboys and foremen and managers. Uh, then we go into our science department. And so um, there's there's several uh, biologists and scientists within our within our department itself that I work in, uh, including Dr. Uh, Andrea Montalvo, who's another kind of quail biologist in the field, and uh, Jason Sawyer, who's our chief biologist. And then we we go or a chief scientist, and then we go into our education department, and we we actually have um, uh, educators that that go into schools and and they bring. Um, we have a program that's called Behind the Gates, which is really uh, how we really teach land stewardship to to all the younger generations. So so middle school, elementary school, even high school age kids uh, come in and, and really learn what it means to, to be land stewards and, and conservation and, and working lands uh, and this whole holistic approach to um, to, to wildlife and, and ranching. That's quite a model down there. My shout out and compliments to my old colleague, Dr. Neil Wilkins, who heads up the East Foundation down there. And you mentioned Andrea Montalvo, had a chance to work with Andrea on her uh, master's and PhD. And then another one I want to give a shout out to is Mossy, uh, Mossy Maia, but I think it's maybe Mossy Cerna now. She's one of the educational biologists and she was one of our great Bob White Brigade graduates. So shout out to all you guys and boy, what a model y'all have. And you got a great complimentary relationship, I'm assuming, with CKWRI, and they're kind of right there next door. So uh, again, y'all are y'all are at the pinnacle of uh, opportunities down there, and we salute all those efforts down there. Uh, we we didn't talk about your background uh, too much about quail hunting, uh, Abe, and I want to say the first time I met you was at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranches advisory committee maybe i don't know 2010 or 11 i want to say you came down there with roy wilson yep. and uh, so i think were you working with the triangle ranches at that time 
Yeah, yep. So I work for Ag Reserves, and uh, one of their properties is the the Triangle Ranch up there, you know, in Paducah, and uh, and so you know, and obviously you got some some good quail habitat up there, and and have have had good numbers over the years. Actually, when I was there, it was it was the in the boom. So it was 2015 and 16, oh. and and it was. I was lucky and fortunate to be up in Triangle at that point. I had some really, really fantastic quail hunting uh, while I was up there. But well, yeah, we, we long for those days again, and I, I truly believe we're poised to see a 2015-like response next year. So fingers crossed on that. Yeah. Tell us about your dogs real quick. You got bird dogs, Abe? Yeah. So uh, Dale, I have right now, and I, I to to my wife's. Uh, my wife has a limit on me. She says I can only have four pointers. So she says no more. I've, I, a couple of years ago, in the midst of this PhD, I went out and, and purchased 14 pointers from, from uh, actually from Roy as they were making kind of a transition. No more. That that was the extent. But right now I have I have my four uh, English pointers. Um, they're mostly uh, they're Rockacre Blackhawk bred dogs. If anyone's interested in that, but um, and then I have two English cockers and a lab. And so uh, I, I have just enough to, to dabble and have a little fun and, and help out if, if someone, uh, someone needs some help on, on the quail rigs down here. Well, that's, I always tell people when you got good dogs, you get good invites. So uh, I hope you <laughs> do. Right. So. That's right. Yeah. Sounds like you only need a setter to compliment your bird dog string. Maybe I can work with you sometime to get that done. Okay. Let's go back and do your project now, Abe, and uh, and tell us uh, again. There is a there is a title for this project, correct? Yeah. So we've we've thrown around um, as it's as it's morphed. Uh, so I'll kind of go back. We went from really my 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 dissertation was the beginning of this project, and and it was really just the evaluating this twenty percent harvest and and looking at some other metrics within quail hunting. Um. But but what what it's morphed into as far as just what we've called it is now this sustainable harvest of bob whites, and and it just kind of explains our project uh, and the and the umbrella of all the research is really looking at our our, our management practices uh, specifically with harvest, but but kind of um, all the other metrics that fall into this are they sustainable? And and you know we'll I'm sure we'll we'll dive into to harvest management, but but it is the key. It is um, one of the one of the kind of critical aspects that that is um, not as well understood as as you would think. With with you know how much uh, hunting drives the economy down here, and and how much interest there is in in Texas in general. So, yeah. Well, again, we're going to go into a lot of the uh, factors that impinge on harvest management and so forth and, and not the least of which are the the people applying the harvest and how effective they are and uh, we'll, we'll bring up terms like additive and compensatory mortality and some other things that we don't normally discuss on a podcast and they're a little bit of what dr guthrie called fuzzy math they don't always just add up two plus two ain't exactly always four so keep that in mind as we move through but i think i suspect what uh, dr woodard and his colleagues are trying to do is just uh, from a scientific standpoint, develop a greater appreciation for those factors and, again, exactly how they do morph and mesh uh, with our traditional uh, quail management. Abe, I'm going to set the stage here a little bit, and I, I think most people on this podcast probably recognize this, but South Texas quail hunting is kind of conducted at a level above what most people most places do it i mean it, it's, a, it's a lot of corporate leases a long history i know there's a publication that dr hernandez did several years ago called uh, the legacy of south texas quail hunting or something like that and so there's a lot of uh, tradition there's a lot of um, a lot of i'm sure politics and uh, a lot of pressure put on folks like yourself and others that because again you've got a uh, you've got that that wonderful Hebronville country that uh, is just about as good as it gets in terms of quail and quail management and so forth. So uh, how, just at the 10,000 foot level, or maybe 30,000, how would you contrast quail management in South Texas with maybe what it was up at the Paducah area in the Roland Plains? 
Well, yeah, the the it's pretty drastic, and the the first thing I would say, um, the first thing that really highlights, and and it's probably the the bottom line on 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 when you you start kind of these looking at hunting and and leasing and the whole nine yards. I mean, it, Texas is private. If we look at the difference between North and South Texas. And and the first thing, if we just start off at the at the base level, and we look at lease costs, and just just the the cost of getting a lease within good quail country, we go from about three to five dollars an acre for for quail hunting only, down in in North Texas in that Paducah Childress kind of area, and then if we come down to South Texas, we're average just for quail is probably around fifteen dollars an acre. And so that that sets a tone for just just a certain amount of 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 um, corporate kind of entertainment because it fits um, more of that that total cost. You know, how, how do we get a return for your money? It's a big investment. And so the, so the guys down down here that have their own just personal quail lease, um, they're having to compete with with people that are bringing in. Uh, and, and they can afford to quail hunt, you know, for three, four months out of the year. Then they'll go fishing trips somewhere else. And so there's there's a driver there which is costly. It is it is more expensive to quail hunt in South Texas, um, which which just kind of has all these layer down effects. And I see it more if we look at the the average quail hunter that was coming to Paducah. They were they were really a diehard quail hunters. And they were coming to hunt themselves. Now they they would bring a guest or two, uh, or a group of guys. But most of the guys that they brought were also, you know, well experienced quail hunters um, that that you know weren't shooting shotgun for the first time. Now when we look at South Texas, and I and I, you know, we recorded probably five to six hundred different hunters uh, in the course of a season or two. So, so just a lot of different people are coming down, uh, within our study and you're, you're getting, we get some diehard quail hunters. I mean, we get, we get some guys that are hunting 40, 50 days a year, which is just a, a tremendous amount of quail hunting. And then we get the guys that they're, they're, they're literally don't own a shotgun. And, and so they're just there for a corporate retreat, they got invited, you know, they, they, maybe they do a little deer hunting, um, but they're, they're not. And so, so really that big aspect, if I look at the big comparisons, one is first, just the cost. It's, it's more expensive down here. And then two is really that, that entertainment side, you know, these, you know, they don't really care if they kill five quail or 10, um, you know, they're, they're not really familiar with, with, you know the dogs or don't really have that full um diehard appreciation for quail hunting now we're hoping to, to foster some of that with these guests um but but you see north north texas region in that paducah caldwell county and, and in that area uh they're, they're really you know kind of those are dedicated quail hunters um and so there's that that's the biggest difference that i've noticed dale okay and so with that as a backdrop now tell us more about uh how you designed your project and what the objectives were for your research project. Yeah. So, so how we designed it was, was simple. Um, we wanted to go out and, and we're, we're evaluating uh, not just the 20% harvest, you know, that was kind of the key, like, okay, this hasn't been tested. It's all from a computer. Let's put it in the field. And so we wanted to, to test that 20% harvest, but we also wanted to test our ability to, to get a density estimate, you know, so, so can we use our helicopter method to prescribe 20%? Are we precise enough with our helicopter estimate to, to be, uh, feel comfortable with, with our ability to, to, you know, give a harvest quota. Um, so, so what we have is what we started with was 15,000 acres. It was our Buena Vista ranch. And that was going to be our hunted site. And then we had roughly 12,000 acres of a control, which was within um, our San Antonio Viejo Ranch, which is roughly 180,000. And so our control was within this, this really big ranch. So we were not having any kind of uh, 
neighboring influence on on that control population. And then so really for that first three years, we just had those two sites and we compared monthly density estimates. And so we were looking at these trends over our hunting season. So from that winter period, from November to March, what was going on with these populations? Um, and we could look at when hunting was occurring. We were trying to distribute that hunting pressure evenly throughout the whole period. So we could look at our hunting in February versus January versus December and really look at this early, middle and late season. Um, but, but hunting success was really poor in the beginning of the year. So it was really just as long as we got to 20%, we were okay. Um, but there was a, a strategic effort to spread that out. And so we were uh, really able to compare this, this hunted site to a non-hunted site um, just by our, our estimates from our helicopter surveys across those seasons. So for three years in a row, we, we would get up and, and fly these surveys. And then in our fourth year, we actually... You know, we're, lo we're looking at the data and we're saying, okay, we're going to, we know we're going to do this long term. And, and we, this is a, a lot of information, but at the end of the day, we really only have, a, a, you know, two sites and a, and a couple, a couple estimates um, of, of more mortality or survival and harvest for those three, two, um, those two sites over three years. So it really wasn't a lot of data. And so our, our next stage was really, okay, let's, let's expand it. Let's add some more sites, uh, both hunted and non-hunted, and we can really kind of um, start bringing in uh, the, our ability to make, make um, predictions across more than just, just Buena Vista. We can say, okay, we have uh, a ranch in Kennedy County, um, one on the, the southern end of Jim Hogg, one on the western egg that's, that's in the sand sheet, one that's more in the thorn scrub type habitat, and an ability to make a little bit more um, broad scale recommendations uh, based off these these harvest uh, levels. So so that's that's kind of um, how this was set up. So we we set aside um, control areas and hunt and hunting areas and and really keyed in on our helicopter surveys to tell us what's going on uh, you know before and after throughout this hunting season period. And it's uh, it's critical that I understand uh, to you know to discuss to implement this type of sustained yield uh, application. You've got to have a pre-season estimate of quail density. Now, folks, you can't do that with a roadside survey. You can't do that with a whistle count. So there's really only two ways that I'm aware of to get density estimates. One of which is band banding birds and through what they call mark recapture. That's I only know one person in the private sector. Shout out to Bill Rao over uh, in Hebronville for doing that. But most of the time, uh, it'll be related to the helicopter count. And uh, Abe made reference to the work of uh, of uh, Matt Snoop and uh, Joy Sands and others in about 2008 and 9 that perfected this uh, helicopter count technique. And I, I take it that they're using it uh, to great success. I know we've used it in... Uh, West Texas, and it seems to work real well for us, but you've got to have a density estimate. You've got to have so many acres per quail. So y'all are able to achieve that with your distance sampling from your helicopter, correct, Abe? Yeah, yeah. And and one of the things we get from that, Dale, and, and just to remind everybody, is we get an estimate and we get a, a, a level of confidence within that estimate. So we actually have uh, confidence intervals. We we know that that you know, our, we believe there's, let's just say, a thousand bob whites or you know, quail per two acres, um, but we know it's between these two two figures. We know it's, you know, between fifteen hundred and seven fifty. We, we we can kind of really um, our our ability to hone in on those that level of confidence we have in those figures is critical, um, really critical, and that's that's why we incorporate distance sampling and and distance sampling theory into our into our research here. So who are the subjects of your research? Um, are they uh, uh, seasonal lease holders? Are they these type of corporate hunters that you're bringing in? Or who are, if we talk about what Guthrie called the hunter covey interface, who are the hunters? What's, what's the sample look like there? Yep. So what we have uh, 
right now we have a lot of different groups. We've added some diversity to that. Um, but but from the get-go, we have um, it's really two corporate camps. Uh, one of those camps would would probably almost reflect that what we what I spoke about within North Texas, kind of seasoned hunters. Um, average age of probably 75, um, but but 20 plus years of experience on a lot of these guys. And then on the flip side of that, on um, this partnership was split in Buena Vista. We had a, a corporate uh, entertainment that was that was more, um, you know, energy company based with with younger, a lot of 30 and 40 and 50 year olds, um, but not a lot of not a lot of hunting experience. So we had guys that had had never shot a shotgun, never shot a gun, period. Uh, Dale, I don't remember, and this is funny. I remember one of the first hunts I did down there, and I, I showed up to the camp, and and it was uh, I came in the evening, and they were shooting skeet, and I I remember uh, I think I watched the skeet hit the ground for about twenty minutes straight, and I was like, oh, <laughs> what, what is what is this? They they did not hit a single skeet for about 20 minutes and they were laughing because they knew you know they were just just coming in to, to hunt and have fun and you know have some some good food and watch some some dog work and, and the whole nine yards but so we have this kind of this full scale we we have the novice hunter uh we've had some some teenagers that have came in as guests and then we have the opposite end of that we have you know, guys that are that are shooting quail a lot. They have a lot of experience, and they're coming in, and and um, you know, this is just one stop in their in their you know trip of South Texas, where they're going five, six different ranches. So a little bit of everything, but yeah, it, it, it's mainly with our groups. It's mainly kind of corporate based. Um, you know, they're they're coming in because they associates or they're doing business with with the guys that have the lease. Well, given that kind of a Duke's mixture of a clientele, then what were some of your findings, some of your results uh, from from those uh, studies? Yeah, or, the, as far as as far as effectiveness or efficiency, if you want to consider that. Yeah. So one of the one of the biggest things that, um, and if we were talked about the hunter cut the interface, and and one of the biggest things I really started to notice with this is we. Um, standard is you would assume um just because the kind of the also because of the the general rule of thumb that you only shoot two out of a covey a lot of people assume that we would harvest two people two birds out of every covey and and we weren't even close to that uh we also so so from the get-go um we didn't allow any baiting um so that one thing i have to kind of point out uh on our main um, study area, we, we did not allow in any baiting. Now we've incorporated baiting into one of our kind of sites as a treatment, but on that site, we did not allow baiting and harvest is only restricted by that 20% number. So they could literally go and shoot every bird out of the covey. Uh, they could also um, just keep flushing. You know, we, we didn't restrict the number of uh, what we call pursuit. So how many times we we kicked up a cubby? Um, now, granted, at, at a certain you know at a certain point, the birds are are so scattered that they're just hard to find. You're better off going and finding a new cubby. But one of those those first things that really stood out was you know we were only harvesting um, across you know hundreds and hundreds of cubby encounters it was only one bird per encounter. And now there there'd be some where we had four or five, I think the max harvest out, out of a single covey was six. And, and I, I, I will be honest with you, I, was, I was, was not comfortable with that as a quail biologist, but from our study, um, you know, if they, if they shot the entire quota in one day, they were done, there was no more hunting. And so, you know, whether they, they killed it all out of, out of you know, the, the 10 coveys or, or had it across you know, the whole season and, and 200 cubbies, it didn't matter. So, but, but there was this level of, um, you know, and, and the hunters didn't actually like it at first. Uh, so it was, it was hard to get it through their mind. Like, Hey guys, um, I want you to get that quota and you're not going to do it if, if we're going about it relaxed. So there was, there was actually kind of a, a, a temperament 
that, that they resisted shooting more than than one or two but but it also when they were only really harvesting a bird per cubby uh you know you look at the cubby encounters per day and if we were averaging 10 to 12 um they just wouldn't they wouldn't have found enough cubbies um in the hunts that they would normal hunting patterns that they would have for to 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 finish the 20 percent um quota within a reasonable manner you know they they were averaging on on our fifteen thousand acres is, is about 75 to 85 hunts a year and so we're talking a lot of hunting pressure and that's that's letting them shoot more than one or more than two uh, out of each covey encounter so that was the first thing dale that really popped like it, it, we're not shooting two and not even anywhere close to that the next thing was our crippling and I'm sure we'll we'll talk some more about that. But our the crippling rate for the study, what what we determined, and this was this was based off some work um, by by uh, another Caesar Clayberg um, graduate, and I think in 2004 and six they did some work on on crippling rate, and and they it didn't have a lot of sample size, but what they found with Haynes et al. Um, was that it was you ended up usually typically crippling about 20% of your overall harvest is, is crippling mortality. So that's, that's legged, that's winged, that's, that's feathered, uh, it's downed and lost. Um, and they also incorporated kind of an un, undocumented, right? There's, there's going to be some birds that, that you throw a pellet through and, and you just don't know, like you don't really see it, um, but, but they're out there, you know, and the, you don't undetected crippling. And so, the other and big thing where I was going with this is we met that crippling that that twenty percent. So I had a out of that twenty percent quota, sixteen percent was to be retrieved, and then there was just kind of an automated four percent. We assumed that four percent of the population would be crippled in this pursuit of our quota, but we documented it all. And so once once we had filled that four percent crippling. They counted towards the total. I didn't want to go over 20. I wanted to be right there. Well, well what I noticed was that, that we were getting to that, that crippling rate very, very fast. Uh, so it, so unlike the, the Haynes et al. recommendation that it was kind of 20% of your total, because we're really looking closer to 30% of our total harvest was, was you know, crippled birds. Um, so... And that's just what we had documented. So that's the ones that that observers, um, you know, researcher myself or or technicians that work for me, um, or the guides actually saw feathers come out, uh, saw the birds go down. Um, that's not including any of bird, any of those those cripples that that were undetected that that maybe um, got affected and and we didn't know about it. And so. Um, that, that's one of those things that sticks out and has kind of led to some more research. But those were the two kind of big, um, big things that stood out from the data that that maybe I wasn't uh, entirely expecting coming into this. And that that you know if we if we look at traditional kind of um, self-reporting, you know, from different things, and there's a lot of really good research coming from Tall Timbers uh, over the years where they looked at that, that crippling rate and total harvest. Uh, shots per per bird retrieved. Um, that one really stood out. It it, it kind of um, didn't didn't flow with the rest of uh, traditional harvest base results. Let, let me let me pause you right there, Abe, because uh, again, crippling loss is something that we've all we've all been acutely aware of, and probably perhaps grossly underestimated it. Uh, sounds like y'all were underestimating it down there. But were there any patterns? Let's talk about the application of this to the back 40 kind of thing. Did you see any patterns? Were, were people using smaller gauge shotguns or certain shot sizes? Anything there that you could point at and say that probably led to higher crippling loss or it was just quote unquote random? Uh, you know, yeah. So what, what we did... Um, and I can't say it, it drastically improved, um, but but one of the camps, the camps with the, the younger hunters that were less experienced, um, I made them all switch to to uh, a tighter chokes, and so they started shooting at 
originally, right? They're they're shooting um, improved cylinders and modified. Well, then we kind of I made them all switch to to either modified and improved modified or modified and fold, and that really kind of helped with a lot of that that crippling on their end. But it didn't it didn't necessarily change the the total results. You know, they they were kind of on the on the upper end of our average. Um, and it, it brought it down some, but but overall we were still around that 30%. Now, the the good thing about what we've been able to do is we, we're documenting what everyone uses as far as, as caliber of shotgun. Um, and, and it's really simple. Over the over the course of of this entire you know project and as it's expanded, um, there has been a total on, on our Buena Vista project, there was one hunter that used a 12 gauge shotgun. Um, one hunter that was allowed to use an automatic. And everyone else in between there, uh, and I'll we'll kind of do the top end. So that was uh, one automatic, and it was a 28 gauge, and one shotgun that was an over and under that was a 12. And then there was two gentlemen that were allowed to use four tens. And everything else was either a 28, a 16, or a 20. And one pattern that that, uh, that I can say that I've noticed, Dale, but I don't have data on, is that when we go from, like, uh, when I go from shot size, when I look at, like, it, it seems like the knockdown and, and less crippling occurs with, a, with a, a number six shot size. If we go seven and a halfs and eights, it seems like, the better shooters are shooting those, but they're shooting real tight patterns. You know, the, the best shooter that I've had on this entire project, he shot a full in an improved modified, but you know, he shot, he shot, the shot size was eight. Um, so there's something to do with that trade-off with, with experience and, and pattern size and, and, you know, having that. Um, but, but for the normal person that just wants to put down birds and, and not cripple any, I, I would go with a, with a shot size around six. I, I think it just performs a little bit better than the seven and a half, especially, you know, and I don't know, you may, you may have some more data on this Dale, but um, the, the novice hunters are a little bit slower getting up on a bird. And it seems like they're shooting out there probably another five to 10 meters past what a, what a normal quail hunter would actually be shooting at or more experience. And, and right. that helps with the pattern being a little tighter. There's a lot of variables going into that. I think we'll agree on that. And we look forward to, you know, when you compile all those data, you'll be able to look at a lot of those kind of questions and hopefully put some science behind the opinion of just what shot sizes and choke selection and so forth, uh, how those affect crippling loss. Abe, I want to back out a little bit here again to a 15,000 foot level now. There's a lot of people, uh, Really, the, the politics of uh, quail management, or in Texas at least, uh, from the state game management parks and wildlife, is that quail hunting is self-regulating. In other words, if there's if quail abundance is low, you might go one or two times, and then you think, well, I'll just stay home and watch the cowboys because they're doing okay <laughs> this year. So there's some self-imposed regulations that the hunters put on them. I, I've got some things that I'll call rules of thumb, and I'd like to get your opinion about whether or not they're fact or fiction based upon your research about the ability to limit the number of birds that are shot, one of which would be you only shoot the cubby rise. You don't follow up on the singles. Is that a good idea or not? Uh, yes, 100%. If you're, and it depends on your goal, right, Dale? If you're wanting to be conservative, if you're wanting to to, to lower harvest and, and spread out your hunting pressure across a long season, only shooting a cubby rise is, is is a hundred percent a conservative action that I highly recommend, uh, especially early season when you still got some young birds on the ground. You know, we get those guys. I, I've had guys that are they're so gung ho to shoot the opening day that they, you know we've we've had late hatches and they get out and they're you know they're shooting pairs and and that's just because they're not as uh, as as cautious. Now you know you can bump the birds up and then see and make sure they're they're you know more than just young birds or more than just a pair or see what the cubby size is uh a lot of guys we used to have a policy when i when i was uh 
biologists on King Ranch that we only shot into coveys that were more than eight birds. Now that gets into the fluidity of a covey and how that kind of um, those interactions occur on, on different density levels. But uh, yes, if you if you, one one kind of um, pursuit, obviously it makes those coveys easier to get back together. When you start really kind of scattering them out and putting a lot of pressure on them, um, especially late in the evening, that that's uh, I would say that there's a really high correlation with with survival um, post hunting encounter and and how many pursuits you put on. <laughs> okay, and you mentioned not you know a lot of people say we don't shoot the small coveys, but I think the the fallacy in that or possible fallacy is that they don't all get up at one time. So you, you don't really know what the covey size is and you knock down three on the covey rack. There might've only been eight birds in there kind of thing. So be careful there. What about uh, double guns only? A lot of leases say, you know, no pumps, no auto loaders, double guns only. What's your thoughts there? Yep. So, so I am, I'm a hundred percent. I'm a hundred percent for uh side-by-sides and over and under still i i think it's part of it is it's it's a safety for me um you know quail hunting it that's sporadic and the covey rise is i had a guy from from england that that called it a cluster uh and he said the cluster rise and and you never really know where they're going to go um so from a safety standpoint it just helps um you know you're limiting those those lots of turning and more shooting than than probably what's necessary, and also again, it it, it really lowers down the, the. It depends on your goal of, of harvest. You know, if you got a ten thousand acre lease and you're going to hunt it for two days, then then maybe that wouldn't matter. But you know, if you're entertaining and having a lot of groups and, and you want to, you know, keep keep incidental mortality down too. Uh, yeah, I I definitely limit it to to double guns only. Well, and as you mentioned, from a guiding standpoint or somebody that's overseeing the hunt. Uh, you'd much rather, I'd much rather have somebody with a double gun. It's very easily make sure it's a safe gun actions open as opposed to somebody that's got an auto loader and doesn't have the chamber, uh, has the chamber closed kind of thing. So I, I like them uh, immediately. We know whether it's a safe gun kind of thing. What about those that would argue, well, we only shoot 20 gauges or less, or maybe even the, take that to an extreme. We only shoot four tens. I, yeah, I, uh, that's tricky that's tricky so that that goes into you know how much experience you know i gotta have a lot of confidence in a guy who's who's shooting only a 410 now i I have a camp now that's you know they they go to 410s just to extend out their quota right so they only get 100 birds and so they don't really want to shoot you know 20 or 30 every hunt they're going to extend that out now are are we getting a higher crippling rate you know, we're putting less number of shot downfield into that pattern. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it'd have to be a case by case basis, Dale. And, and that would be um, just really based off of how well they, the, and how much experience they had shooting four tens. Uh, season length and bag limit. There'll be some people say, well, we don't start hunting until first of January or, you know, we think the bag limit, uh, what the state says is 15. We say it's eight, eight bird per day bag limit. Uh, what's, what's your thoughts on those kind of uh, statewide harvest recommendations? Yeah, well, you know, this uh, obviously could get into some politically charged stuff, but I, I think uh, when we when we talk about additive versus compensatory mortality, so so. Um, and First it, of all, I define those two terms in your yeah your... yeah. So so additive mortality um, would be you know if we if we. Any, any, now this goes back to the project too, and we can kind of tie this in that, that mortality occurs, especially in the winter, regardless whether you hunt them or not. And that, that's, there's tons and tons of evidence on this, and we, we have proven it. And it's, it's, there's been years on our research where we actually had a higher level of, of population decline on our non hunted site. So, a place we did not hunt at all. We had a higher level of, of overwinter mortality than we did on our hunted site where we killed, you know, 20% of, of the population uh, during harvest. So uh, natural mortality occurs no matter what. And at really high levels with quail on certain times. Um, 
So, so when we talk about additive mortality, that means that those birds are added to the total. So, so if we lost a hundred just natural mortality hawks and 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 coyotes and bobcats or whatever gets to them, that there would be say we lost a hundred of those and then we killed a hundred total mortality would be additive and it would be 200 birds lost if we look at and say well it's compensatory and 100 percent compensatory well that would mean that that out of those 100 that we would lose to natural mortality we're going to lose no matter what and we harvested them and it was one for one so we only lost 100 birds through the course of that year now what we normally find is that it's a gradient and it's it's not it's not completely additive and it's never completely compensatory, but it's usually like somewhere in the middle and it just depends on the year. And so when we look at, look at Buena Vista and then kind of my harvest, if you look at our hunted site versus non-hunted is across all the years and, and all the sites that we have, it's usually around 40%, uh, 40 to 45% overwinter mortality. Um, so those are those birds are getting lost, and that's non-hunted. That's that's they just get lost. We lose that many over the the winter period. Well, when we look at our hunted site, we end up losing about fifty to fifty-five percent. So it's a slightly higher, but very similar number. And that 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 rate uh, is is you know there are twenty percent harvests within there. So there was there was some natural mortality. If it was totally additive, it would have been 60 to 65. If it was um, totally compensatory, it would have been 40 to 45. And not to get into a bunch of numbers, but it's it's somewhere in that middle. There's some of those birds would have died either way, and some of them um, some of them did die as an as as well as you know harvest and natural mortality combined. So to to tie that back into our season length. When we look at um, South Texas, you know, we're, we're shooting quail in February. And, and I'm most of it, especially down here in South Texas, the weather really dictates uh, good quail hunting. You know, it, when it's 20% relative humidity and winds 20 mile an hour and it's 90 degrees, it's not really good quail hunting. So most of our cool fronts, northerns come in really now, this kind of January in February and a lot of our harvest is really kind of right there and that's right before our birds start pairing up you know I I, I look at the, the calendar and if I had to, to mark a date on the calendar where birds really start calling and, and getting active now that depends a little bit on rainfall but but usually March 10th March 12th somewhere in there we start getting some some calling behavior and coveys start breaking up and males start singing so we're getting we're, we're still shooting birds two three weeks before that and so that those those birds you kill on the last day of quail season are probably additive mortality those ones would have lived to go on and reproduce where the birds that that you harvested in you know the first week in november you know those those there's a high probability that that those are the kind of that surplus that that probably would have died anyways and so as as you get later um, you do kind of get a little bit closer to that that window for for additive, you know, harvest mortality and loss. Um, now, the way the way we manage and going back to to Dale, your comment about self limiting is that's it's usually um, it's usually the case. So so normally when we have um, really good numbers. We're, we're probably okay. Most of these ranches would never kill 20%. You know, you look at some of the data and, and you know, the seven years that I was was on the, the Halliburton's lease on, on King Ranch, you know, I don't know if we ever got above 5%. And so most of these places, even if you are shooting them right before the end of that season, you're really not doing damage because you're, 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 you haven't hit that threshold of a really high harvest level. Um, but, but, you know, you, you've got up a good point because if we have a 120 day, um, quail season and, and, and every quail hunter shoots 15 birds per day, uh, theoretically we, we could be, um, 
shooting way beyond what what probably should happen but but there is some some self-limiting and and i i've never met a group of of people let alone hunters that were had a more conservative mentality than quail hunters i mean there, there's most of the quail hunters around would 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 rather not even shoot uh if it's even more close to thinking that there would be um a detrimental effect onto a population so it's it's kind of a, a catch-22 that that really we it, it probably needs to be um, analyzed further and could probably use some more research. I'm going to add two other uh, rules of thumb, if you will. What uh, my buddy Steve Sheridan and I, shout out Steve, we call quail snooker. If you've ever played eight ball, you know that snooker is a little bit more refined game. And uh, we call quail snooker only shooting the roosters. And people say, boy, you can't do that. I promise you, folks, if you're serious about it, you can. And uh, my one of my favorite photos of my dog, little Annie, me and Steve had been hunting, and uh, we had 28 birds on the tailgate, and 25 of them were roosters. So we put a self-imposed limit of two hens per uh, per shooter per day on that. Works. Try it sometime if you consider yourself an advanced squirrel hunter. And then i got to relate Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation's attempt at this back in the 60s. Uh, I grew up in Oklahoma, and, and the quail hunting that I first started with, you could only hunt on Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and legal holidays. And then Monday was added. Abe, you got any idea why Monday would be added to the quail harvest? I, I don't. You're, it's no, because, don't. All the, because all the barbers had bird dogs, and the barbers were off on Monday, so they had the political clout and got it changed to Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and legal holidays. And then soon it became Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, legal holidays in the day before and after a legal holiday. They finally in the mid-70s just threw up their hands and said, okay, it's every day. So that was their attempt at that. Uh, kind of winding down here, we've got about 10 minutes left, um, Abe. So I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to precede the question with a quote by Will Rogers who said that people love high ideas, but they got to be about 33% plausible. Is the sustained yield harvest approach that you've talked about and uh, hope to prescribe, is that, and I, I'm not mad, I'm not mad at you, but is that practical or not? So, so here's what, what makes it really hard uh, to, to put into practice. Um, and, and again, we're, we're looking at the threshold, right? So we, we're, this is max of what anyone would recommend. But one of the hardest challenges in, in wildlife field in general is estimating density. And so I, I, when we when we prescribe a harvest and when I'm telling these guys, here, here's 20%, this is how many I want you to shoot, you know, each month and throughout the year, that's really an estimate. It's, it's, the, it's, it's based off of my density estimate of bob whites. And so that's really an estimate of harvest. And so if I look at, you know, where, where that could be, it, it, I'm, I'm assuming it's 20%, but it really has this variation where it might only be 15, it may be 25. And so it's, it's kind of a challenge. And, and we do multiple surveys, which is allows us to be more precise. And we can look back and say, well, you know, you know, when I set my quota, all I had for data was November survey. But if I go back and I include, um, you know, December and, and January and February, and I refine that estimate, I can go and say, well, my realized harvest was actually 17 or 18 or 25 or 22. And so the challenge I would say with, with is this plausible, is this practical, as I would say, I wouldn't push that threshold. And just for the simple fact is it, it is an estimate of harvest, uh, just like our our density estimate of quail is an estimate it's 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 not perfect you know we're not counting cattle so they're they're they can move um there's there's level of confidence within our detection and whether or not we see them and flush them and so i i always would would lean on on being the conservative side of that so so we're testing you know the max and whether this is plausible and i would i would back off to that and, and that's where I recommend a lower prescription or, or going off like a, a your lower confidence interval, right? So I mentioned earlier, like I could say, well, I think our estimate is a thousand, but it but it may be fifteen hundred or maybe seven fifty. Well, you may want to want to base that harvest off that seven fifty. 
And and again, if you if you kind of incorporate our our quail tradition rules, you know, where we're you know only shooting so many pursuits, uh, only um, killing two out of a covey. There's a lot of those rules are are in place to kind of protect protect us from overshooting in the long run. Now, again, you could go and you could some of that's total harvest pressure, right? Uh, you know, you could limit it to two birds per covey, but if you if you shoot that covey, you know, ten times in a year, it there's pretty good odds that there's no birds going to be left and you were over harvesting. So there's a balance there, um, but I I would say uh, it, it's it's practical for for um, us to really say like okay you know I, I don't have to limit it all the way down to to five percent or barely shoot any I can still harvest some um, but I should be conservative and I should have some some conservative management practices okay uh, you mentioned earlier a eh, but publication number three from Caesar Clayberg about quail harvest guidelines for South Texas and that's a good one to I, I don't know if any of your research or your findings, uh, have they basically supported uh, what was published in that one or any changes, edits that you would make based on your research? Yeah, so so with that, I would, I really would, as of right now, um, we would just have kind of this preliminary data set. Uh, we're gonna get more and more and as the years go on. Um, for the most part, Dale, if we look at our, we kind of have nine sample sets, nine seasons where we can kind of compare uh, hunted to non-hunted. And, and out of those, out of only one of those seasons was our harvest, what I would consider on that really additive plane. And it was beyond the trend line. So it was significantly different than our non-hunted area. And, and that was the, the year that we had a February freeze. And, and in that February freeze, our hunted area declined at a much drastic, uh, sharper rate than our non-hunted areas. And, and that, that would give me uh, a good, good kind of pause for concern that, that you know, 20% at, at eight different seasons, it didn't matter. But that one season, it really did. It had an impact. Um, and there was, there's probably something to that where, you know, we can't predict when that winter storm is going to come. And so we're putting a lot of hunting pressure and we're shooting a lot of birds and they're just, um, you know, they may not be in, in, in low overall health, but we've affected them uh, uh, to a standpoint of just uh, behavioral changes from the, from the hunting pressure that we put on. And, and with that combined freeze that lasted four or five days down here, um, it, it, it had a, a detrimental effect and, and it's, you know, we've had some recovery from there, but that's really stood out to me as, as man, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. And that, and as we go into more of a longer term data set with, with more years, um, it's going to be interesting to see, see how those weather systems and those really hot systems or, and cold systems have effect when you're, when you're pushing uh, total harvest as, as hard as we are with, with this study. Well, Abe, we appreciate your uh, re research down there. We appreciate the efforts and uh, the teamwork and all the good uh, work that y'all are putting into quail and holding holding the quail banner high, as I put it, and uh, keep up the good work down there and look forward to continue to work with you guys uh, when we come to South Texas for quail masters, whatever. So um, any, uh, any final comments you want to leave our listeners with? Uh, yeah, I want to, uh, Dale, I want to thank you for, for doing what you do. You've been a big inspiration to a lot of people. You've uh, done a lot of good things for, for quail, and you, you've actually done a lot for me. When I when I went back to get my Ph.D., uh, Roy Wilson, a good friend of mine, asked me, and goes, what, why do you want to do that? And, and uh, I said, well, I want to be like Dale Rowland. <laughs> and so that's that's uh that's the true story you'll have to ask Roy about there. But uh, right. anyway, so thank you, Dale. And, and I really enjoyed it. If, uh, if anyone's got any questions about the project or whatnot, it's eastfoundation.net, the website. My contact info's on there, and, and Dale has it. And and uh, really appreciate everything you're doing, Dale. Okay. Well, thanks again, Abe. And uh, there are several papers in the literature that we didn't get a chance to discuss. But I would encourage you folks, if you're have a bend towards more scientific reading, 
uh, go to what's called Google Scholar, scholar.google.com, and type in Harvest Regulations, Bob White, Texas. It'll lead you to three or four key papers by folks like Peterson, Perez, Guthrie, and some of those, and I would encourage you to read those. Uh, we're going to be doing the uh, Quail Masters 24 class starting in April of this year, so I want to mention that to you and uh, encourage you to attend if you're a serious student of quail. And harvest management, you will, we'll go much, in, much more into uh, depth relative to some of the concepts that we've talked today. Also, as we wind down the quail hunting season, uh, I'm always interested in your hunting reports. So drop me an email at drollins at quailresearch.org. Send me any photos of any weird quail that you encounter. And if you have any questions about today's podcast, again, you can send those to me and I'll forward those on to Abe as it uh, as appropriate. Um, Lastly, we'll be uh, doing some prescribed burns, quite a bit of prescribed burning this year for the first year in several years up at the research ranch. So if you have a hankering to uh, gain a little torch time, uh, contact me and uh, we'll be glad to keep you apprised of those. And finally, uh, kind of what I'll call a Hail Mary for podcast speakers. We've been doing this for about 55 episodes and I've still got a number of people to call upon. But if you know of a potential interviewee, somebody that you think would give have a fascinating story to tell, please share that information with me and, and help me reach out and see if we can't get that individual lined up to do a podcast in the future. And with that, Gary, uh, we're turning it back to you and we'll look forward to seeing you next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Abe, for sharing your research and insights. Continued success in your efforts at the East Foundation. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.